All right, so we've been studying the book of Galatians, so please open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Last week we had a real interesting week. Uh, looking, it was entitled, Put Away the Knife. And we were looking at the first half, up through verse 10, of Galatians, where Paul went down to Jerusalem and he took Barnabas and Titus with him. And Titus was that perfect example of someone who was not circumcised, yet was completely right with God, and had been filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this, he brought this brother Titus with him, and he, he made a whole argument that we looked at last week about how they were trusting in circumcision and, the, and, and the, the way that they could hurt their body, the way they could go through hard things so that they would please God. It was a big outward symbol that they made the big deal. And so we studied about putting away the knife and not relating to God based on that kind of legalism. And tonight, he goes on, and he, he kind of shifts gear a little bit. He moves on to the next part of the, his story. So this chapter 2, Paul is establishing all that he had been through already. He's telling the Galatian churches how he had defended this gospel of grace. And, as we've been looking, how he's at war through his whole life against legalism. Against legalism. He's at war. His whole life is against legalism. And so tonight's uh, study is called Don't Go Back. Don't Go Back. No return to the law. And, legalism, and, and we're also going to look at how legalism is incited by fear and peer pressure. How those two things drive us toward a mindset of legalism and maybe even turning our back on the gospel that we know, the truth that Jesus did everything on the cross for us, peer pressure and fear can cause us to turn our back on that. But our exhortation tonight will be, don't do it. Don't go back. An old, an old fable that's been passed down for generations tells us about an elderly man who was traveling with a boy and a donkey. As they walked through a village, the man was leading the donkey and the boy was walking behind. The townspeople said to the old man, you're a fool for not riding. So please, so to please them, he climbed up on the animal's back. When they came to the next village, the people said the old man was cruel to let the child walk behind while he enjoyed a ride. So to please them, he got off and put the boy on the animal's back and continued on his way. In the third village, people accused the child of being lazy for making the old man walk. And they suggested, and the suggestion was made that they both ride. So the man climbed on and they set off again. And in the fourth village they came to, the townspeople were indignant at the cruelty to the donkey because he was made to carry two people. The frustrated man was last seen carrying the donkey down the road. So, that is what happens when we let other people's opinions influence us. Why do we listen to what other people think? Because there is an ingrained desire to compare each other with each other by a standard of the law. There's an ingrained desire inside us, our flesh, this wicked 
against God flesh that we have has this desire, this crazy desire that's like a thirst to compare with each other. That while I'm better than that killer, we, we compare ourselves. Oh, what a terrible human being. I'm better than this guy. I'm better than that guy. We have this desire. And even the best of us, even the most holy and righteous of us, have this filthy desire inside us for comparison. But in, in reality, many times, this comparison, or like we saw in the story, it's just a difference on how a person interprets the law. Like, oh, that person shouldn't have long hair. Used to be a big deal. Still is to some people. That person shouldn't do this. This person shouldn't wear pants. That person should wear pants. I mean, it's like this whole interpretation. It's whatever their interpretation of the law is. And they can have reasons. There's whole books. I saw a whole book once on why women should wear pants, should not wear pants in church. A whole book defending legalism. If Paul was there, he would take that book and burn it. You, Julie's got an idea. She's like, burn it. Did you have a problem burning when you were a child? Okay, well, Paul would have, would have gotten all over that book because it, it strikes absolutely against what the gospel, what we have learned the gospel teaches us. So, we, in, on contrast to this legalism, we have been freed from the law. If you believe the Bible, that is, Turn real quick, keep your finger in Galatians. Turn to 1 Timothy 1.9. We've looked at this verse a couple times, maybe even, 1.8 and 9. But as you see it here, it says, But we know that the law is good if... I love that word, if. That's such an important ver- word in this verse. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate. And then he lists a whole bunch of terrible things that are not godly. He lists after that. And then he says, any other thing that's contrary to good teaching. So the law, this list of rules that we know, or any list of rules that you can come up with, is not profitable, it's not useful, it's not good for someone who's already been made right with God, which we're going to see in just a little while. So, why would we go back to a thing that doesn't work? Why would we go back to the law? When you've been freed, when you've been set free, and you believe the Bible, you say, okay, I've come to know Jesus as my Savior. He died on the cross doing a great work. Now, I just believe in that work and I'm saved. Why would I go back to the law, to rules and regulations? Why would I do that? Well, let's look in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. I'm going to read that in the New Living Translation because it, it helps me to understand it. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. What he did was very wrong. So now Paul is going to deal with this issue 
of legalism and going back to that once you've already been set free, once you've already in relationship with Jesus. I know most of you in here, I know most of you have a really strong relationship with Jesus, but there's still this danger of going back. And I want to warn you of it. And Paul, that's his purpose here. He's going to warn, and he's going to tell a story of Peter. Not a very flattering story of Peter either. A lot of times we think of Peter as the, um, you know, one of the most famous apostles in the world at this time. Probably the most famous Christian in the world at this time. He, he had, had done many great miracles. He was pretty much the leader of the church. He was the first guy to, to understand that the Gentiles could be saved. You didn't have to be a Jew to be saved. And, and he was there and he prayed for the Gentiles and they received the Holy Spirit proving all of this. But we also know Peter was a big, bumbling, impulsive goofball. Right? Anyone identify with that? <laughs> wow, we have a high percentage of Peters in this room. Well, this is a great lesson for us then. Peter makes a huge blunder here. And Paul... Now, I want you guys to know at the very beginning, these are not enemies. Paul and Peter are not enemies. In fact, Peter, much later than this, towards the end of Second Peter, he calls Paul our beloved brother Paul. So they're good friends. They're buddies. Peter mentions them in his book. They're, they're very good friends. They're, they're more than friends. They're, they're brothers. But even that, there was a big problem here. So... When Peter came to Antioch, he did something very wrong, showing us that even our buddies or role models can be wrong or become legalistic. And here Paul is being such a great friend. He's being a great friend because he sees his good friend, Peter, someone he looks up to, someone who was saved before him, probably like a father in the faith. He sees his, his role model failing. And we're going to get into what that failure was in just a minute. But he sees him mess up. And he doesn't just keep quiet. He lovingly directs him. But he has, it has to be a confrontation. But he loves his friend enough to come up to him and say, you're being legalistic. And that is basically hating Jesus. You may not see it that way, but it is. So, I know you love Jesus, so why are you acting this way? It was, a, it was a theological issue. It was a theological question. And Peter was making a mistake. So, verse 12, he says, For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Brings up a lot of memories of what we talked about last week, huh? All, you, you guys hear the word circumcision now and you're like, oh, those terrible people, so legalistic. Well, this is what he's talking about. So, James had sent some visitors and Peter was there before they came and after they came. Before he came, Peter is eating and drinking with the Gentile believers. So the church would get together and have like a feast or they, they would get together kind of for church. And for church, they would bring food and they would all sit together and eat, showing that they were all family. Because eating back together back then was a big connection. You didn't eat with people who you didn't fundamentally agree with. That was their big thing, was eating together. And, and so 
eating with these Gentile Christians meant Peter was thinking, I'm, these guys are my family. This guy, I love these guys. We have a relationship. But when Jan, some, some legalistic people came from James, when they showed up, Peter wouldn't sit down to eat with them. So all these Christians are like, all these Gentile Christians are like, what's going on? They totally get shafted. And Peter's not being loving to them. And he's not identifying with them anymore. So Paul tells us what happened, and he tells us, even tells us why it happened in this verse. But I want to focus real quick on what Peter, <clears throat> about Peter. So Peter had known that God did not require Gentiles to come under the law of Moses for salvation. He already known that. Let me tell you how. He had learned this from the vision that God had given him in, in Acts chapter 10. Remember, he dreamed about the, the sheet being led down with the, on the four things and the bunch of creepy crawlies on it and God told him to eat them and he's like, no, and God's like, yes, and Peter's like, no, and God's like, what are you talking about? I've God, listen to me. Whole big story about the Gentiles are clean. When God cleans them, they're clean. So, he had learned about it then. Then he learned about, he had learned about this truth from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles who believed, apart from being circumcised in Acts chapter 10, verse 44 through 48. And he had learned this by the agreement of the other leaders of the church in Acts chapter 11. So now Peter turns his back on all that he had known. He knew all these things, but he turns his back on it. He turns his back on these people, these Gentiles, and treats them as if they were not saved at all. He treats them like they're not even his family. Which as you guys, as I explain it like that, you guys are like, man, Peter's really being mean, unloving. But for him, it was because of what? Fear. Look what Paul says. Fearing those who were of the circumcision in verse 12. It was because of fear that he did this. And he led others to do the same. That's the power of the leader of a leader. Look in verse 13. He says, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrites with him. So even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. See, Peter was a, an awesome leader. Even though he was this bumbling guy, he was a great leader. Because he was bold. And, and he was bold to get the Gentiles to be included in the church. And he, brought it all, and he did all these things to get them in there. And now he, he has a, a lapse of judgment. And for one moment, he's unloving. For one moment. And what happens? All these people follow him. He's probably like, why weren't you guys following me before? <laughs> he makes one bad decision, and they're all following him. That's why we've got to pray for our pastors. Pray for our leaders. Because they have just consequences for their actions. Consequences. And as we got, as we've been able to witness our pastor going through hard and difficult trials, what example have we seen? It's been amazing. We've seen him trust in the Lord and keep his eyes focused on the Lord and, and encourage all of us to do the same thing. You know, we're blessed because not every church has a pastor that's a good example. 
And many times those churches have people that act just like their pastor. Don't they? You've seen it. And that's why there's unhealthy churches out there. So Peter... causes them to be hypocrites. Being a hypocrite means to wear a mask. That's literally where the word comes from. So the religious good upbringing that all these Jews had had, even Barnabas, they all had this good religious upbringing where their parents kept telling him, you guys are, are different than the world. You're different than the pagans. And it's true. You know that? The Jews lived differently than the rest of the world did at this time. They cared about what was right and wrong. The rest of the world, they, they were killing, they were lying, they were stealing. They had little as far as morality goes. But the Jews had very strong morality. And that moral upbringing became a mask for these people that they could put on for, to be a substitute for true spiritual living. They could put on their, their religious upbringing, their righteous past. And it became a mask for true spiritual living. We, we've talked about this before. What is my definition of legalism? A substitute for true spiritual living. These guys have a mask for it. Even Barnabas had a mask. He probably had not used it in a while. But at this moment of peer pressure and fear, he pulled it out of his bag and slipped it on. Because it was so easy to put it on. When you have it, I have this righteous upbringing. I, I was a, I've been a good person. Doesn't that count for something? Because, look at this, verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew live in a manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? So, Peter backs away to not eat with the Gentiles. When a Jew refused to eat with a Gentile, he did this in obedience to Jewish rituals. Peter had already learned that the obedience to Jewish rituals, such as keeping kosher, was not essential for salvation for either Jews or Gentiles. We already looked at that in Acts 10 and 11. He'd already learned that. But Peter had stopped keeping these Jewish rituals for himself. That's what Paul says in front of everyone. He kind of stands up. Paul formulates this idea of what he sees this happening. He sees the Jews have congregated together and kept all the Gentiles away or put them in a different place and they're treating them terribly. And Paul, he's like, then, uh-uh, no, this is not happening. And so he formulates this plan. He stands up and he starts like this. And he says, Peter, you act just like them. Peter had stopped keeping these Jewish rituals for himself and he's now acting as if he does keep them to accommodate the legalism of these certain men from James. I hope people, I hope people who, who see what I do, it, that it doesn't cause them to lose their way like this, like with Peter. So, Peter no longer kept the strict observance to the law of Moses himself, 
But by his actions, he implies that the Gentile believers must keep the law when he himself did not. We always judge others more harshly than we judge ourselves. Have you guys heard Pastor Ed say that? We always judge others more harshly than we judge ourselves. And doesn't, as we're looking at this from the perspective of legalism, doesn't legalism just produce a lack of love? Where in 1 Corinthians 13, it teaches us that love is gentle and patient. Legalism is harsh. But for Paul, think about now this story from Paul's perspective. It must have been hard being Paul right here, knowing he was in an, uh, knowing who was in agreement with Peter, who, who he was about to stand up to fight against or to argue with. First, Peter had the strong, domineering personalities of these certain men from James. Then, Paul had Barnabas to deal with, his best friend, who had gone with him on all his missionary journeys. He's here, and Paul has to stand up, and he's going to come against him as well. And finally, he had all the rest of the Jews that were in this town, in Antioch. Paul was the minority in this issue, and it was him and all the Gentile Christians against all the Jewish Christians. These te- they were teaming up. And look at who Paul was teaming up with. The Gentile Christians. The people who just maybe days before or weeks before or months before were pagans. And let me put this in a way that we could understand it. They were murdering maybe homosexual maybe just living in adultery, maybe worshiping pagan gods, maybe hearing church bells. (laughs) These were the worst people that a Jew could imagine. Someone who was so depraved that the Jewish mind honestly thought that they were only created to make the fires of hell hotter. That's what the Jewish mind thought. And Paul knowing these, these pagans had just come to know Jesus, now he stands with them and says, all you guys who have been grown up in the ways of God are treating these guys wrong. And he, So look at the team that he's picking here. He's picking the wrong team, you'd think. But he knows that the Holy Spirit has made them different and has cleansed them, and we're going to get into that. So Paul tells Peter, basically, Peter, you eat bacon. You eat ham. You eat lobster, Peter. You don't keep a kosher diet anymore. We can tell. (laughs) But now when these visitors come from James, you act as if you keep these laws all the time. What's up, Peter? Why are you doing this? So verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles knowing that a man is not justified by the works of law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So Paul now confronts Peter about what the problem is. He says, Peter, we all grew up as observant Jews. We all had this perfect home life. We grew up like this. You know very well that we were not, that 
at that time, we weren't considered right with God. That the way, when we became justified was when we believed in Jesus. We did a great lot. We, it's like Paul is saying, Peter, we did a great job keeping the law for all those years. But even we had to trust in the work of Jesus on the cross alone for our salvation. Even we did, Peter. Do you remember when we looked at Paul's life? How much of a Pharisee he was and how zealous he was for legalism? He was the poster child for legalism. He kept every law like blamelessly. Yet he had to come to Jesus alone for his salvation. So, um, with that being the point, he tells Peter, why are you coming against what you know to be true? So he says here, it's only by faith that a, man is that a man is justified. So what kind of faith is it then? It's not just intellectual conviction. Just, yeah, I believe, I, 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 I believe or I, I understand that Jesus died on the cross for me. It's not just that that, that is faith that, that he's talking about that saves someone. The expression in the middle of verse 16 is literally, we who have believed into Jesus Christ. It's an, act, it's an act of committal, not just assenting to the fact that Jesus lived and died, but running to him for refuge and calling on him for mercy. Do you see the difference? It's not just knowing that Jesus died on the cross. A lot of people know that Jesus died on the cross. But when you run to him, for refuge and call on him for mercy, you're engaging with what you know and that's what faith is. That's what the faith that justifies is. Look again at verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith in Jesus Christ, even we who have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So on justification, what is justification? It's the declared purpose of God to regard and treat those sinners who believe in Jesus Christ as if they had not sinned on the ground of the merits of the Savior. It's not a mere pardon. Pardon is a free forgiveness of past sins. It has reference to those sins as forgiven and blotted out. Justification has respect to the law and to God's future dealings with the sinner. It is an act by which God determines to treat him hereafter as righteous, as if he had not sinned. The basis for this is the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ, merit that we can plead as if, as if it were our own. He has taken our place and died in our stead. He has met the descending stroke of justice, which would have fallen on our own heads, if he had interposed. And that was a quote or a definition from Albert Barnes. So this is why what Peter did was so awful. He was putting the useless law, or the law that doesn't work for justification, in front of his brothers and sisters in the Lord. And he was treating them unlovingly. So what difference did it make if they were circumcised or not? Ate kosher or not? Bring out the bacon and ham and lobster, Peter. Because that's 
Because all that matters for justification, Paul says, is real, true faith in Jesus. And that's the truth of the gospel. That's the simple message of of this chapter. Is we can't let anything get in the way of that. That it's faith that saves someone. Never our actions. It's faith that justifies someone. And we have to be so careful for getting into legalism. So verse 17 says, But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. Paul now answers the critics of the Gentile Christians in the best way possible. See, these critics are are looking at the Gentiles and they're saying, they're thinking in their mind, they're not even trying to keep the law. And it's probably driving them crazy. Because they have spent their whole life learning that you have to try to keep the law. You have to try to, commandment number one, commandment number two, commandment number three, commandment number four. And if you break commandment number four, go get a pigeon and kill a pigeon and, and do a sheep and all these crazy laws. Man, it was crazy. But Peter says no. Paul says no. They were thinking, I don't like that. I, they need to try like me. They need to try hard. And I've had a couple counseling sessions with people who say, I'm trying so hard. I'm trying. I'm really, really trying. And I tell them, will you guys try to not say the word try? And they, they're like, okay, well, I'll try. I, well, I don't know what word to say. And I said, that's the point. Your whole outlook on what you're doing is an effort. And what's the word they should be thinking at that point? I surrender. I surrender. So they, these, these Jewish Christians are saying, man, they're not even trying hard. And Paul's like, that's the point. So verse 18, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Essentially, Paul says, there is more sin in trying to find acceptance before God by our law-keeping than there is sin in the everyday life as a Christian. There's more sin just trying to keep the law than there is if you just are a Christian. Of course, this is the great tragedy of legalism. In trying to be more right with God, they end up being less right with God. This is the exact situation that the Pharisees that opposed Jesus so much during his earthly ministry found themselves in. And Paul knew this because he was a Pharisee himself. So I'll read those verses in the New Living Translation because it sounds great. Uh, But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ. And then we found and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Remember, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law that I already tore down. So verse 19. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Notice that the law is not dead. The law is still very good at doing its job. And there's nothing wrong with the law. It's perfect. It isn't the law that died. It's Paul that died to the law. His relationship to the law died. 
Guzak says, David Guzak says, he came to the point where he really understood the law, understanding it in a way that Jesus explained in the Sermon on the Mount. Where the, the, and the, the last two words in the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount is be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Just be perfect. That's the whole summary of the law. And when you understand it that way, Paul realized that the law made him guilty before God, not justified before God. That's the purpose of the law. So this sense of guilt before God killed Paul and made him see that keeping the law wasn't the answer. Martin Luther says here in this section, Blessed is the person who knows how to use the truth in times of distress. He can talk. He can say, Mr. Law, go ahead and accuse me as much as you like. I know I have committed many sins and I continue to daily, but that does not bother me. You have got to shout louder, Mr. Law. I am deaf, you know. Talk as much as you like. I am dead to you. If you want to talk to me about my sins, go and talk to my flesh. Belabor that, but don't talk to my conscience. My conscience is a lady and a queen and has nothing to do with the likes of you because my conscience lives to Christ under another law, a new and better law, a law of grace. That's a great quote from Martin Luther. thought I'd throw that in there. That one's free. So verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Again, Paul anticipates a question from those who disagreed with him. All these Jews that he's talking to, and he says, or he anticipated their question, Paul, when did you die to the law? You look pretty alive to me. And Paul is happy to answer, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. Paul says, I will never go back to relating to God based on the law and how good I was at keeping it. Now I live by faith in his keeping of the law for me. And this all comes to me by grace. All this righteousness and love comes to me through this new covenant of grace. So going back to the law is setting aside the grace of God. It's one way or the other, not both. Either Jesus provides everything for us or he doesn't. There's no middle ground. What do you think? Is he everything for you guys tonight? Is there still something that you're trying to prove yourself in? Are you trying to prove to your parents that you're a good kid? Still? Are you trying to prove yourself to yourself that you can do it? Are you trying to impress that girl or that guy? Are you trying to look like you have it all together? Are you trying to look good for people at church? Are you trying to get other people to look at you or look at you the way you, they, the way you think they should? Are you trying? Instead of just being. Instead of just trusting. Instead of just believing, are you trying? We can get, this legalism gets so tricky in our minds because we think, oh, it's good to try to be a good person. We think that. 
Our flesh thinks that. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Only being a spiritual person works. So have you believed in the grace of God? Do you really believe tonight that grace works and your efforts don't work? I've been talking about it for weeks and weeks and weeks, but I I don't know if I even all the way believe it from the deep down parts of me. Do I really believe that my efforts don't work and my efforts actually disqualify me from pleasing God? Do I really believe that? Watching a trapeze show is breathtaking. We wonder at the dexterity and the timing. We gasp at the near misses. In most cases, there's a net underneath. When they fall, they jump up and bounce back to the trampolines, trapeze. Sorry. In Christ, we live on the trapeze. The whole world should be able to watch and say, look how they live, look how they love one another. Look how well the husbands treat their wives. Aren't they the best workers in the factories and the offices? The best neighbors? The best students? To live, or that is to live on the trapeze, being uh, a show to the world. What happens when we slip? The net is surely there. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ has provided forgiveness of, for all our trespasses. Both the net and the ability to stay on the trapeze are works of God's grace. Of course, we cannot be continually sleeping on the net. If in that case, I doubt whether that person is a trapezist. That's a quote from John Carlos Ortiz. When you look at your life, are you going forward with Jesus? Or are you sleeping on the net? In other words, no matter what you do, whether you're, whether you're succeeding or whether you're failing, if it's done in faith, you're pleasing the Lord. But if you're sleeping on the trapeze, in other words, if you're just trying to do it in your own efforts and you're, and you're not engaging with Jesus, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. So we went long tonight, and I apologize. But let's pray and sing a song, and we'll go home. Jesus, thank you so much for your great grace. Lord God, we do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness came through the law and through our efforts, then why are we even at church? But if grace really works, then then we need to trust it. We need to be engaging with it putting on a show for the world so that they can see that we're living uh, for you and that we're, we have some, some sort of strength inside us that's not of our own. And God, we just ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit as we leave here. Lord, we want to trust you in everything. In your name we pray. Amen.